This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Yes, indeed. As Santa Claus comes to Santa Claus Lane, he might be bringing you some connected devices. We love how they make our lives easier, seamless. And yet, all that connectivity means any kind of digital hack can give an entity access to so much in our lives. Let's get more on this. Craig Williams is Senior Technical Leader, Global Outreach Manager at Cisco Security, on the phone from Austin, Texas. Craig, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. Um, How concerned do we need to be about all these connected devices? Well, so at Cisco right now, Talos, our security group, is basically seeing 20 billion different threats blocked every single day. And unfortunately, that number is increasing every day. So it's something we really need to worry about. And well, yeah, but, connect- but, but what's different about it? Like, what's, right. are, the, are these devices, because I've, I've heard stories from uh, makers of hardware, these devices, saying, you know, on a fundamental level, they're not, these companies have I've got so much going on, they're not paying attention to security. That's right. That's exactly right, Corey. So the, the problem is when these devices are designed, and these devices could be toys for your children, they could be your baby monitors, they could be cameras and, to watch the exterior of your home, most of them are designed to be cheap. And so they're not designed with security in mind. And what that really means is they're not designed to have an update ever made in the future. I mean, the problem is having a development team around to make those updates is extremely costly. And that's why devices from really large companies cost so much more than the really cheap ones you can find around, you know, the, the holidays. So, right. so to buy, to buy a, a, I'll put a fine point on it, to buy a Nest camera made by a, a company that acquired by Google might be more expensive than a, a cheap knockoff, but the cheap knockoff isn't going to have the security. Exactly. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. When I, when I had my kid, I went out and bought uh, a cheap video surveillance camera because it was frankly cheaper than baby monitors and had all the same features. Well, it turns out one of our research teams got a hold of that exact same brand of camera and then found 40 different vulnerabilities that we had to work with the manufacturer to patch. So effectively, if an attacker was able to penetrate my network, they would be able to log into that camera and effectively live there for forever because I had no way to see if anybody had hacked it. Wait, so just to be fair, not to be inflammatory, Craig, I mean, who's really, I mean, hackers, are they really going to target my baby monitor? I mean, what they really care about is where they can either access money or things like that. Unless it's a really cute kid. Well, I hear you. But no, seriously, right? I mean, I don't want to be like, whoa, everybody, you know, uh, we're about to come undone. But I mean, to be realistic, folks are going to target things where they can get something, whether it's in a financial account or or get into your house or something like that. You're exactly right. The problem is what these devices allow is basically an attacker to have a safe haven in your network. You know, think about it. If you have a computer and if it gets attacked by a drive-by download attack, you know, browsing a news site, say, uh, that attacker will look around your network for things to take, for things that have monetary value. Well, to them, these devices are simply going to look like uh, a web server. They're not going to know that it's a camera. They're not going to know that it's a garage door opener or a children's toy. They're going to say, oh, look, there's a server. That server's really old. I have a way to exploit that server. Let me go ahead and exploit it and then see if there's any data inside it. And once they get inside the device, they're going to realize, oh, I'm now in their thermostat, and they have no way to know that I'm here, and I can effectively sit here until I can find some data that's valuable. Why hasn't it happened, you know, well, hasn't it happen- has happened why- but bit. why hasn't it happened a lot? 
Well, we are seeing these being used more and more, right? There have been large-scale commercial breaches that came in through things like the heating and cooling systems, which are effectively what we're talking about today. You know, the reality is, if these devices aren't designed with security in mind, and if they don't follow best practices by, you know, having unique passwords for devices, they're really just enticing attackers to come find them because it's such an easy thing to exploit. Who's doing this? You know, hackers all over the world. Well, we'll give, you know, give, give us a little more color on that. What, what kind of hackers? Are we talking about oh, kids in a basement or are we talking about North uh, Ukrainian crime networks or, or, or North Korean government? Well, I think all of the above. You know, the, the, you know, at the end of the day, what people are looking for is an easy way to compromise networks that might have valuable data on it. And if all these devices are running very, very old pieces of software, they're very easy to exploit. So you're going to see everything from kids in the basement to really sophisticated attackers using them as vectors because they're so hard to detect and because so few people have visibility on them. Hey, Craig, who's ultimately responsible, though? Is it consumers when they buy a device to make sure that their devices are secure? Or is it the manufacturer who's responsible for cybersecurity? Carol, that's a great question. You know, I think it, the responsibility lies on both parts. You know, I think when you look for a device, the first thing you need to do is pull out your cell phone and Google it and the word update real quick and figure out if that manufacturer produces updates for it. If they do, that's great. That's a step in the right direction. You know, then look for the word security after the word update. You know, if they have two, those two things, if they produce security updates, you're probably okay. You know, on the other hand, there's probably always going to be manufacturers that just want to produce extremely cheap devices that won't have security. And that's where we're seeing a lot of the problems today. Five seconds, look at me three types of devices where you've found problems. Uh, cameras are a big one, thermostats, door locks, uh, garage door openers. You know, at the end of the day, people need to take their devices, set them to update automatically, make sure that they use unique passwords, and make sure that when they get a device, it's designed by a vendor who had security in mind. Interesting stuff. So Mildly terrifying. I'm my old keys. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, that's why I'm not having more babies. How about that? Craig Williams, uh, great stuff. Uh, Global Outreach Manager at Cisco Security. Listen to Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. Oldies but goodies, tech investments. Uh, that's certainly the focus of Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager of Rational Funds, who joins us here in the studio. Um, Eric, when you look at the world of tech, how do you define te tech? Two things. All right, so tech companies have been a lot around, some of them for a while or Intel's or Oracle's and, and so on. Um, and IBM's, you can go over this, but there's older ones than that. But they get a high valuation because the prices of companies are going to grow like new tech companies. So when you look at old tech companies, where do you see value if the growth isn't what uh, new tech companies give you? Well, uh, you know, it's funny. The This year, new tech, high PE, um, those kind of companies were where the gains were. And you've had some good gains in some Amazon, old tech. Amazon, Netflix. Amazon, Netflix, Facebook, Google. Um, but old tech, I, I would put Apple in probably old tech, Microsoft, Cisco. I'm sorry, that's Apple calling, and we're not old tech. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Intel. Some of those names are, you know, they've, they've been put aside for some of the new exciting ones like PayPal and Square. But those, these, the old tech names have great earnings, great cash flows, aren't super expensive. So our focus has been a little bit more on the older tech companies into 2018 because of the, the valuation. Uh, is, what's old, 37 years? Because 37 years ago today, Apple went public. 
That's pretty scary. Yeah. And my, look at Microsoft. Microsoft did, did nothing for 15 years until it just broke out a few years ago. So what's driving that? Um, you know, that when, I, when I came to Bloomberg's so seven years ago, uh, the, the, our, our notion for a new technology show was the idea that technology was the, the newest uh, 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 types of technology, mobile, cloud, um, uh, were being adopted by CRM, were being adopted by non-tech companies for the first time and changing the way lots of businesses are running, not just technology changing technology companies. It's a game of survival now. A lot of these companies did what they did, and it was very important, and they didn't change. And so these little companies came up and started carving out little niches, and, and now all of a sudden it's, it's a little bit like our last conversation. A lot of older companies, they fell asleep for a little while, and now they've, mm -hmm. they've reemerged. Uh, bigger, stronger, with a lot more cash to compete and innovate, and now they're 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 acting like new tech, even though they have the balance sheets of of old tech. So let's talk about the old tech that you are investing in, and I'm looking at um, your fund tickers HSUAX Kimball International. So this company makes office furniture. No, is it the wrong one? That's actually so. Uh, we just took over this fund oh, on okay. October seventeenth. So this is different. You may be looking at the old holdings that we have since sold on the seventeenth. So Kimball, Dana, Manpower—they're gone. They are gone. Got it. They that are was gone. last. So, that was last quarter. So t okay. So that was as of the end of September. Correct. So tell us what's in your fund then. Yeah. So so from a technology perspective, we have. Amazon is one of the bigger holdings. Okay. Still love that, a big secular growth theme. But we have Cisco is a big name, Bro just recently broke out of a long, long base, which is a really attractive uh, formation. We have Intel. Intel has kind of lagged the semiconductor group and has now uh, reemerged itself with uh, the, the acquisition of Mobileye, getting into driverless cars right. uh, and, and those kinds of technologies. And then we have the, the Activisions, the video gamers. We own PayPal in there as a, you know, let's call it a new tech. Uh, mobile payments being the theme. How did you pick and choose? Uh, it's a part between uh, fundamentals and technical. So, all right, but you just named some companies that have completely diametric fundamentals. Intel or Facebook uh, was, was that what you meant? But Amazon, no earnings whatsoever on, the, on, a, on a net income basis to speak of, right? Um, uh, and and very low operating income uh, as a percentage of revenues. Whereas you look at a company like Intel and it's throwing off some pretty nice earnings. Absolutely, and a great dividend too. Yeah. So it's you know we have a bit of a, what we call a barbell <laughs> approach in the portfolio. Some of the names are higher growth. Amazon, not a lot of earnings, but a lot of revenue, a lot of free cash flow generation that they are plowing back into innovation and taking over new industries. Then you have some more traditional value tech that pays a 3 4% dividend, generates a lot of free cash, and is now having some reacceleration of growth. So it's a nice uh, a barbell approach. And then we have staples on the other side. It's a little bit of everything. So it's not like you have one set um, formula here. That's filtering through and pulling up a certain kind of stock. No, we have uh, so our investable universe is 200. It's an index that we run. It's called the Alpha Brands Consumer Spending Index. We're getting ready to reconstitute the index next week. So 200 of the most recognized and relevant brands, and that is our investable universe. And then from there, we can have value brands. We can have growth brands. We can have dividend growth brands. We can have international brands. Uh, we can have a Nestle. Nestle's and L'Oreal are in the portfolio. What makes you buy or sell, though? Uh, a lot of it is based on fundamentals and changing of fundamentals, and then also uh, price action that changed. So if we have a great, if we have a company that's done really well for the last uh, the last year, fundamentals are starting to deteriorate. Price action is starting to de deteriorate. We'll probably move on to a to a better name because we always have 
uh, other names that we might want to take a look at. So it's not hard to find uh, a new name. And it doesn't bother you that something like Facebook or Amazon are both up more than 50% this year? It, it doesn't. I mean, we don't own Facebook anymore. We owned Facebook earlier. Frankly, I'm a little nervous about Facebook. When I compare Facebook to Google, they both have relatively the same market cap, and Facebook has a fraction of the revenues of Google. That uh, They're both growing, so I'd prefer to have Facebook's Google. Facebook's a, a free cash flow machine. Google's not bad, but for the Facebook's free cash flow generation is just off the charts. A absolutely. But now they're getting the, now they're getting the crosshairs of, of the government, too. And I, that, that worries me a little bit. And this is this is managing upside returns, but also downside risk. And so I, I'd, we'd rather bet on the Google and the fact that they have multiple levers to pull versus Facebook seems very one-dimensional to me. I, I do wonder about uh, Facebook and elections and, and government oversight, global oversight. I do think that's increasing. And, we'll, and that may be one of the stories we're going to be talking about a lot in 2018. I, I have a feeling uh, we, we will. We will. Not just Facebook. Amazon, Google, Apple, maybe even Netflix at some point on the, on the media side. Is Amazon getting too big? Just got about 15 seconds. Um, it may be getting too big because they're able to, to just go into any industry and disrupt it in a major way. At some point, the government might uh, step in. Got to run. Nice to get some time with you again. Thank you. Happy good holidays. To be here. Happy, Happy Christmas. Holidays. Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager at Rational Funds, based in California in our New York studio on this Tuesday. Oh, time for the chart of the day with our Bloomberg Stocks editor, Dave Wilson. Um, chart of the day. You're taking a look at the possibility of an inverted yield curve and what it might mean in terms right. of the equity markets. You know, chart of the day, hey, leads you right <laughs> to stay. And that's what uh, Charles Schwab's Jeff Kleintop is recommending that stock investors do as they look out over the bond market and get concerned that there may be a recession signal coming soon. His take is stay invested in stocks. And yes, the, the inverted yield curve, the whole idea that, you know, rather than having higher yields, if you invest your money in treasuries for longer, you would actually have lower yields. Doesn't happen all that often. Uh, Kleintop went back and looked at half a dozen examples going back to 1973, where the yield curve inverted, uh, and he used three-year or three-month Treasury bills and ten-year notes as sort of his reference point for the inversion. You know, there are different maturities that people look at, so it's worth noting. But more than that, he said, "Okay, how did stocks do in the final year, 12 months before?" the inversion took place. And pretty much across the board, they rose. And he didn't just look at the U.S., which he did with the MSCI USA index. He also looked at European and Asian markets with the MSCI EFA index, and then more broadly at developed markets around the world with the MSCI World Index. And just to give you sort of a scorecard, U.S. actually had relatively small gains. 9% on average over these half a dozen instances since 1973. Uh, the EFA index did a whole lot better, rising 21%. You put it all together, MSCI World averaging a 14% gain in the final year before inversion. So it's like if you were to sell stocks now, you get worried that, you know, the curve reverses itself and, you know, signals that perhaps a recession is on the way that would bring an end to the current bull market, you might very well miss out on some pretty substantial gains. That's his point. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it. And everything I do going forward, the email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. 
That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Past performance, no guarantee of future returns. Well, that's pretty, pretty good indication in his case. He's been giving us some good stuff with really great looking charts. And, and the chart really does help. I love hearing you explain it, but seeing the chart really puts it over the top. All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much. All right, we're going to switch gears a little bit, everybody. Talk about the positive Amazon effect for one industry. Yep. We're talking about the grocery delivery startups. Here with more, Craig Giamona, our consumer reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Say what? That's right. Well, I mean, I think the surprise here is that when this deal got announced, there was a feeling that, okay, anybody that's in Amazon's way, that does anything to do with grocery, that they're done. And Amazon buying Whole Foods. That's right. So, you know, that deal comes out. You saw the stock, the uh, grocery stores go down in the stock market, the food companies. The feeling was anybody that's in the way of Bezos and Amazon is just going to get crushed. Kroger shares took a big hit after having already taken a big hit right then. That's right. Kroger shares got crushed and they've been hit hard. I mean, Campbell, General Mills, Kellogg. So, I mean, it just was widespread pessimism that Amazon was going to crush all all these companies. Here we are about six months later, and these grocery delivery startups really are growing very fast. And the simple reason is that Kroger, Albertsons, everybody said, wow, we better have a, a delivery strategy. This is a low-risk, easy way to have one right away. Is this a short-term blip, or does this make sense? You know, that's a great question. I mean, five years from now, who knows? I mean, right. but as of right now, Shipt and Instacart, which are these two grocery delivery startups, you know, Instacart's a little bit bigger. Yeah. They're the answer for grocery stores that were spending years kind of saying, ah, oh, digital's coming. It's you know, it's starting, it's slow. Do we really need to do it? June 15th happens, the deal gets announced. They say, wow, we better have something right away. So right now, these companies are growing because of this. And you, see, you see it at the, gro- sorry, you see you it at the grocery stores. If you go into the grocery stores, which I do very uh, infrequently thanks to Instacart, <laughs> but you see when you go into the grocery stores where they've got a checkout line devoted to the Instacart shopper or they've got a packing area devoted to the Instacart shopper. And, and I, I, I certainly see a lot of it in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I mean, Instacart's based there. Uh, but I've noticed it cropping up around uh, uh, you know around here in, in Long Island and in, in uh, Westchester County where I spend some time, and, and you're seeing the same thing. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, Instacart was really well known as the exclusive delivery partner of Whole Foods. But think about this. I mean, they started the year in 30 markets and are now in 170. So that's, again, that's Kroger waking up and saying, wow, we we need to offer delivery. Delivery is tiny. Online is tiny in grocery right now, 1% of the market. Is it really that small? It's tiny. Wait, 1% what? Of the grocery market? Of the grocery market. Nobody nobody buys food online. And so the feeling is, though, obviously, that that's going more towards 10%. And that we that's do. Gonna, I do. Yeah, some people do in cities. Sure, people in San Francisco and New York might do it, but it's just not a widespread behavior. But these companies like Kroger are saying, well, if there is a person out there that wants delivery, we don't want them going somewhere else. So we're going to offer Instacart. Like I said, it's a very low-risk way for them to offer that how, service. How does it become widespread? People who look at this industry, do they say, yeah, I see at some point that 50% of the grocery market will be online? I hear 10. And I mean, I think one of the ways it happens is Walmart. You know, and I'm hearing that more and more that look at walmart.com. And that's a mainstream shopper that is starting to order a little bit online. That probably means more ultimately than even Amazon Whole Foods, because that's a mainstream customer that's opening up to the idea of buying food online. Because right now we just don't, we don't do it. It's Amazon Fresh. You've got this deal driving things, you know, but you mentioned this. But then throw in the fact that you've got customers getting bombarded with with uh, uh, Blue Apron advertisements and so on. Could be interesting. Great stuff. Craig, Craig Giamona uh, from Bloomberg News, thank you for your time with us. Interesting story. And one, uh, I want to hear more about your grocery deliveries, Carol. I love when they come in their little boxes. I am the eye in the sky, looking at you. Joe Blunder joins us right now. CEO of a company called D Drone, a company we talked about a little bit, uh, thanks to some of its high-profile investors. But an interesting company uh, looking at the problems emerging in the drone space. I don't, I don't want to use it. Let me rephrase that. In the in, in the industry of drones, uh, and and York, uh, talk to me. What is the the mission statement? What are you trying to do at D Drone? 
Well, with D-Drone, we are trying to capture drones. And as you know, drones are no longer toys. They fly long distances, they carry heavy payloads, and they can do a lot of malicious things. And that's what we're trying to avoid, just like capture rogue drones uh, before they spy on companies or before they even drop bombs on public events. Tell us about what most of your business involves. Is it with the military at this point, or is it also uh, in the commercial space? Is it? Are you working with companies? Give us an idea. Actually, it's more in the commercial space. So when you see what drones can do these days, uh, it's very easy to spy on companies. It's very easy to put malicious uh, networks on companies, to, to sniff their networks, uh, just even to film through windows, see what they're doing, what people leaving the buildings. So spying is a big thing. Um, cyber uh, criminal is a really another big thing, like how you use drones to actually hack into networks and steal data. And then, of course, you have a whole variety of prisons, for instance. I mean, drones have been used to smuggle drugs into prisons. It happens frequently, almost every every day. And uh, we see drones in stadiums, we see drones at embassies, all places where you do not want any drones. And what we are doing, we are capturing that. We are trying to scan the airspace and uh, report any activity of drones in the, in the vicinity so of the how building. So how does it work? Well, like a human being, we are... I'm, I'm, I'm imagining a bunch of guys with, with a butterfly <laughs> net standing on top of a building. Have you no. tried that? Well, it's probably cheaper than what you're well, doing right now. Yeah, we're not using eagles, so we're not looking up. So we're using technology like um, RF scanning. So we're scanning for really the frequencies of drones when they talk to their ground stations. We're looking like the shape when they're flying. We're using cameras and enhanced image recognition technologies. We're using radar and you know multiple sensors to really scan a whole uh, huge airspace around around buildings. So we're scanning up to a mile radius, more or less, with one sensor, and that gives us the ability to know where drones are, but also to know where the operators are, and also to know where they're flying, what's the flight path, etc. So what are you finding? What kind of information, then, are you providing back to your customers? I'll take an example for us in San Francisco. We have our own building, and, of course, we're scanning our own building as well. We are detecting up to eight to nine drones a day flying around our building, and we report back to the customer what kind of drones, like what's the maker. Wait, where's your building? Uh, it's in Soma, uh, 7th and Folsom. So right, yeah. that's that's kind of the edge of downtown. It's near Airbnb headquarters over there, a couple of great restaurants. Um, and uh, 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 why are people flying drones there? Well, they're flying at day and night. Uh, we don't know why they are flying. We just know that they are flying. We know at what time. We know how many times they've been in the airspace. We know what the makers are, like is it a DJI or a Unique or a Parrot or what's the maker? These are, the these drone, are drone manufacturers you're mentioning, yeah. Yeah, these are drone manufacturers. So we see exactly when, at what time, and um, w w what's the flight path, and eventually also what they may be carrying. So and I guess that's what I'm interested in, um, Jörg, is, is what is it that you find, like how many of the drones that you detect are doing malicious things that we need to be concerned about? How many are just somebody just, I don't know, taking pictures? Can you break it down that way at all? Well, it depends really on the customer itself. So let's say in prison, when you have a drone flying into a prison, um, it's mostly 100% dropping contraband. So there's no taking pictures, there's not just snooping around and flying, but it's really dropping contraband. And that really happens a lot. 
Um, when you have a data center, for instance, and a data center on the rooftop, they're very vulnerable. All the infrastructure of a data center is really on the rooftop. If you fly a drone there, you can cause serious damage. You can just knock out the whole data center by flying into the air cooling, into the air conditioning elements. Um, so this would be more like, almost like terrorism. Then you have, um, think about what, what happened to the 49ers game some weeks ago. At the end of the month, somebody flew a drone into a stadium and just dropped leaflets, yeah, just mm -hmm. like free speech or whatever he was. But he could be dropping anything. It was a full stadium of thousands of people. So he could be dropping poison or IEDs or anything that kills people. And this would be definitely the same vehicle, but different application. Uh, what kind of things have you had success stopping? Where's, where's your business working the best? Oh, the business um, is working the best here in the U.S. Um, and we're headquartered in San Francisco. So mainly we're selling to the West Coast. We're selling to a lot of critical infrastructure. We're selling to stadiums. Um, we're selling a lot to prisons. We're selling a lot to really um, headquarters, design centers, nuke plants, research centers. Um, and the same thing, unfortunately, also in Europe, where there's a lot of criminal activity these days of drones. And, and, and I'm assuming airports, too. Just got about uh, 15 seconds here. That's going to be a big customer as well. Yeah, airports are frequently in the news when drones flying very close to airliners, which mm -hmm. they absolutely shouldn't do. And, of course, it could be a catastrophic uh, thing when a drone gets sucked into the engine. Uh, probably there would be, you know, the engine goes out, airplane goes out, and hundreds of people would die. Okay, got to run. Jörg, unfortunately, we've got to run, but nice to check in with you and hear what you guys are doing. Jörg Lamprecht, CEO and co-founder of D-Drone, joining us on the phone in San Francisco. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. Let's talk about some of the stocks on the move in the Tuesday session. Carl Master here along with Corey Johnson. S&P 500, 253 names in the S&P. Higher today, 247 lower, five unchanged. Number one gainer, though, Corey, in the S&P 500. Ticker is MAC Masterich. It's a retail REIT, uh, real estate investment trust. Uh, number one gainer up 5% to $66.47 a share. We saw shares of U.S. mall owners rising after Unibail Rodamco struck a deal to buy Australia's Westfield Corporation for about $15.8 billion. Another retail REIT, Taubman, was up 6.5%, still down about 15% so far. They've been under strain as the overall retail sector has been under strain. Uh, but nonetheless, we saw some interest, investor interest, after that deal uh, in the retail sector uh, among mall owners. Uh, so again, Taubman and Masterich among the gainers in today's session. Uh, Oasis. When you think of Oasis, you're thinking... Anguilla. North Dakota. Anguilla. Oasis Petroleum uh, is, has been an, an, anything but an oasis for investors. Midnight at the Oasis? Something like that. It's midnight there lots of the, lots of the day because the sun's not up a lot this time, <laughs> at a certain time of year. Oasis Petroleum uh, yeah. delivered, uh, del uh, drills for oil and gas. 
uh, in the Bakken uh, region up there in, in North Dakota and, and surrounding areas. I've been there. Um, uh, it's yeah, cold and dark this it's, time of year. Yes, it is. It's it's a, it's a, it's it's an effort. Uh, they've decided <laughs> to get more diversified at considerable expense. Oasis agreed uh, to uh, acquire some uh, more territory in the Permian Basin down in Texas, but they're paying over a billion dollars to get there. That price tag of stock and cash will give them a 20,300 Permian a- acres from a company called Forge Energy LLC. It was a private equity-backed uh, company. Uh, and they're going to issue 32 million new shares to fund the deal, scheduled to close in February, and sell 500 million of non-core drilling rights in the Bakken this year. Uh, investors did not like this. Uh, we've seen that they're paying a lot and they're giving up a lot uh, to try to finance this thing to get more diversified. The company's based in Houston, but as I mentioned, the Bakken formation has been, in North Dakota, Montana, has been where they have uh, focused uh, their efforts and they want to be in the Permian, where drilling costs are a lot lower. We've been hearing that from our friend Neil Dingman and others. Yeah. But uh, getting there is real expensive right now and they're paying the price, uh, both in terms of the cost of over a billion dollars, but also... 17.2% decline in shares of Oasis, which is now a $2.2 billion stock. Uh, that's a 45% decline of the year. All right. I want to talk a little bit about Mattel shares because they are the number three decliner in the S&P 500, down 4.9%, down 75 cents to $14.62 a share. Mattel shares now down 47% here in 2017. What happened today? Uh, let me just I brought up the story. Now I lost it. Mattel uh, dropping uh, after Mona's Crespi Hart cut Mattel to neutral from buy as the analyst there, Jim Chartier, uh, predicts a conservative initial 2018 outlook amid low sales visibility and numerous cuts to the 2017 forecast. He says toy industry sales are trending lower than expected so far this holiday season, believes the company's revised 2017 forecast reflects both company-specific and industry softness. So uh, expects management to guide to low single-digit sales decline for 2018 in line with the current estimate for a 1% drop. So uh, again, a downgrade there, cut to uh, neutral from buy over at Monus Crespi Hart, and that meant for Mattel shares down 4.9% in today's session. And as long as we're staying in the Bakken, let me mention Whiting Petroleum. Whiting Petroleum uh, down 8% today. Big move in an, in an up market uh, with, in the, with uh, the S&P 500 up 15 basis points, or 1.15%, I should say. Uh, Whiting Petroleum uh, uh, is offering to sell a lot of debt at a 6.625% yield, billion dollars of debt. Uh, priced at par, uh, so the, that debt and that, that deal settles on the 27th of December, but that gets the deal out the door. J.P. Morgan, the underwriter there, uh, but nonetheless a, a more heavily levered company there, uh, coming under pressure with shares down 7.6 percent after we see that uh, that uh, sale go through. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Who's next? What do you mean? Oh, it's Dave. Oh, Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dave Wilson's with us right now with his stock of the day. I'm so easy to forget, Corey. No. no. Dave's. That was no. irony. That was sarco- I could never. How many people do you have following you on chart of the day? Well, I, I don't have the number. It may be 11,000. It may let's not go. be, but 11, it's close. 000. That's for sure. Okay. Anyway, but let's talk about today's stock. It's Penumbra. Maybe a word you've heard in connection with solar eclipses, a partially shaded area around the edge of a shadow. Anyway, 
It's the name of a maker of medical devices that are used mainly to treat stroke patients. Penumbra was founded in 2004 when public in September 2015. Uh, the ticker is P-E-N, the first three letters of Penumbra. company made its initial public offering at $30 a share, and the stock's worked its way higher ever since. This year, the shares climbed as much as 82% to a record. And all along the way, every analyst that followed the company had some kind of a buy rating on the stock. That united front was finally broken today as BMO Capital cut its rating to market perform from outperform. Analyst Joanne Wunsch wrote in a report that Penumbra had become a costly stock relative to its peers and would have a harder time moving higher. Now, that prospect didn't sit well with investors. Penumbra fell to its lowest price since the beginning of October, down as much as 7.6%, though it did bounce back in late trading, closed with a loss of just 4%. Penumbra. Penumbra. Penumbra, Umbra, and Pantumbra, right? Those you work on that, Corey. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays, 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.